A question asked courageously, answered honestly, and lived authentically can change your whole life. For me, that question was, how can I use what I have, what I love, and what I know to bless the lives of others? The School for Good Living and this podcast are one answer to that question. Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery, and sometimes the misery, of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and the motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Today, my guest is Lydia Slaby. Lydia is somebody that I met in the desert in New Mexico through a friend, a common friend, someone else who's been on this podcast, Arkan Lushwala. Lydia is an advocate, writer, speaker, and she describes herself as a change witch. I don't know what that means, but it's provocative. Who's focused on empowering people, communities, and organizations faced with daunting change. Okay, now I know what it means to be a change witch. Lydia is the author of Wait, It Gets Worse, Love, Death, and My Path from Control Freak to Human. It's her first book. It tells the story of how she survived non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, her journey as a storyteller, at least in this capacity, in this project, began with her blog, HairOptional.com, which she started as a way of sharing and, I think, emotionally processing what was going on during her cancer treatment. Lydia is an amazing storyteller. This book is not the kind of thing that I would normally have picked up, but after I met her and I asked her one of my favorite questions, what are you reading? Do you know any authors? Which everybody seems to know at least one. She shared with me that she was an author. She's just written and published her first book. I downloaded it immediately, began to read it, and I was captivated. Lydia is pretty smart. She holds a BA with honors in urban studies and business economics from Brown. She's a graduate of Northwestern's JD MBA program. After she left school, she found herself working as a high-powered corporate attorney in Chicago, focused on bankruptcy and restructuring, but she says she found herself in a job she never wanted, being a human doing instead of a human being. Something I can definitely relate to, and probably you can too. One of the things that I love so much about Lydia's book is that it's honest, it's touching, it's funny, and it tells this amazing love story between her and her husband, Michael, and not some sappy fairy tale kind of love story, but a real love story about being there for each other when life seems challenging and terrible and like it can't possibly get worse. But as the subtitle of her book suggests, wait, it gets worse. I feel fortunate because nobody close to me has ever been diagnosed with cancer. And I suspect that someone near you probably has. I know it's so common, but this book can be, whether or not your life has been touched by cancer in some way, this book can be a way to gain a better understanding of what life and treatment might be like for someone going through that. And the last thing I'll say here in this intro is I have this theory that a big part of life is about becoming more of who we really are and less of who we're really not. And I think that Lydia's journey, what she shares in this book and in this interview is a perfect example of how she is someone who has come to be perhaps a more complete version of herself or the person she always was. And part of that is uh, becoming a published author by following her inner voice. So anyway, I hope you never, ever have 
some of the experiences that Lydia describes in this book and a few in this interview, but I do hope you gain the wisdom and compassion that's available to you by hearing her and what she went through. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with my friend Lydia Slaby. You can learn more about her at LydiaSlaby.com or HairOptional.com. Enjoy. Lydia, welcome to the School for Good Living. Thank you so much for having me, Brian. Lydia, what's life about? Oh, starting small, aren't we? Um, I believe that life in general is about evolution. Who are we and how are we being on this planet to help us evolve as a species, as, as a community of beings, human, animal, plant, planet, otherwise. But how is it that we become the best spiritual version of ourselves? And that takes brains and it takes tenacity and it takes thoughtfulness and it takes quiet. But that's, that's how I'd answer that question. Okay. So you've written a book called Wait, It Gets Worse. <laughs> I have. Love, Death, <laughs> and My Path from Control Freak to Human. Mm -hmm. Why did you call it that? Uh, the subtitle actually comes from a conversation I had at one point a few years ago with a gentleman who looked at me and he said, have you ever thought about being a human being instead of a human doing? And I, I was so baffled and confused and sort of surprised by his language. Um, and I said, well, I've always been a human being. And he said, no, you're not. You're not a human being at all. You're only a human doing. And so I really thought about it. And it, it was right when I was beginning to meditate. And it was right when I was beginning to take the time to stay still. And I realized he was right. I'd spent my entire life trying to control everything around me. And so doing, a lot of doing. My brain did a lot of doing. I did a lot of doing. Um, and I had never learned how to be. So that's where the subtitle came from. Um, the title came from... My editor and I had just thrown out a list of about 100 titles, and it was the one that made both of us laugh the most, um, honestly, because my story in the book is one series, one medical disaster after the next, and then a relationship disaster and job disaster. And it was just disaster after disaster after disaster. And eventually, I mean, there's a wonderful ending to the whole thing. But to get there was just this hilarity of ridiculous circumstances. And by the time it's all written down in a book that's not particularly that long, it's like, oh my God, it just, it just kept getting worse. And so that's where the, that's where the main title came from. Yeah. That was my experience reading this. And, um, for those listening, you know, Lydia and I met on a mountain in New Mexico <laughs> and we did. And when I, shared a little bit about who I am and what I'm up to. And I said, I have a podcast where I interview authors. I'd actually shared it with your husband, Michael first. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, I know an author. And, you know, told me that <laughs> it turned out your book like, had just been published a few months before, yep. which was, was pretty cool. And when I, I started, I had enough sell signal to, to get on Amazon and buy your book right when we were together and started reading. And, and you talk about, you know, this medical, like this memoir where things get worse and get worse and get worse. And, and at the same time, it's very much a love story, which mm -hmm. I was really moved by. And, and having been there, having met your husband and having heard, you know, being able to read this and 
in a way, I would imagine you must feel pre-exposed where it's like you're out here laying your life story for anyone and everyone to read. How has that yeah. been? Putting yourself out there that way and putting your husband and your relationship out there like that. <laughs> so I I do. I felt and I continue to feel very exposed by it. I I actually, about two weeks before publication, I left this hilarious message on my editor's voicemail and I said, I was practically breathing into a paper bag and I said, what have I done? And she called back laughing and she said, well, you did it. Buckle up. Um, <laughs> and, but it's true. So my husband and I have been in this very long relationship on and off for the better part of 25 years. And we've both made mistakes and we've fallen in and out of it. And, you know, we work really hard at being the people that we know are each other's best partner. And when I decided to, I had to include the love story in with the medical stuff because it all just happened at the same time. And it would have been an inauthentic piece of writing if I hadn't include, included the love story. But while I was writing it, it was really difficult to make sure that I was writing my story and not also his story. Because of course he has his own perspective on everything that's happened in our lives. And so I was very careful with that. And as he, and in order to be that careful, he actually read every single copy, every single version. So he read about 20 versions of this book. And every time there was something in it that he would sort of push back on, we'd have a conversation about it. Um, but at the end of the day, both he and I in this world of Instagram and social media and all the rest of it feel that it's really important to tell imperfect stories. And if you get the 30-second version of our story, it sounds amazing and romantic and ideal and oh my god you all met in high school and you're still together and and then the two minute version is a little bit more interesting than that and then obviously the version that I wrote in my book which is a much longer version is it's not perfect it's not a perfect story by any stretch of the imagination and both of us feel that it's really important to have imperfect success stories out and so I'm willing to go through the, the sort of flayed open vulnerability um, in order to make sure that that story is out there, as is Michael. Um, we both feel it's really important to have stories like this out there. Yeah, I love the way that you describe that about telling imperfect stories, because no, no one of us is perfect, and we all have stories, and we all want to share our stories and be seen and be understood and connect but I think a fear of whatever, it's not good enough, it's not perfect, what will people think? And the fact that you have been able to put it down and share it with others is really beautiful. It is, is really a beautiful thing. And, and I don't know how you feel about this. And I would think, like, I, I guess I should make a, an admission. I, wouldn't, I don't think I would have picked this book up if I hadn't met you personally, right? <laughs> I'm not at a point where it's like, oh, this is really speaking to me, but I'm very glad I did. I'm, oh. I, I'm really, really glad I did. So tell me, who did you write it for and what did you want it to do for that reader? Um, I wrote it specifically for women between the ages of 25 and 55-ish and mostly uh, well-educated. I mean, if we were really going to like parse this down in the way that the marketing people think about it, it's 
well-educated women going through transitions and transformations. And so it's the moment when you're graduating from college and you're looking for your first job. It's the moment that you get fired from your first job and you don't know what to do with your life. It's the moment that you get married and suddenly your life is different or you have a baby and suddenly your life is different or you get a divorce and suddenly your life is different or you've had children and you're going back to work and you don't know how your life kind of fits together anymore. But it's a story that, you know, I'm a woman and I am well-educated and I am white and I have all of the privilege that is associated with all of those adjectives. So it's a story for, on the very smallest level, it's a story for other people like me. Um, On a much larger level, though, I mean, you read it and enjoyed it. Um, A gentleman who's 19 read it and was blown away by it. You know, people who have who do not come from privilege or have my background or my skin color have read it and it's really touched them. Um, and so it's it's a larger book for people who are going through transitions and transformations and they're panicked and they're freaked out and they have no idea what to do. And it's I think it's a way to help bring them a little bit of calm of look, I mean, we have three aspects of our life that fall apart, right? We have our bodies that fall apart. We have our relationships that fall apart and we have our jobs. We have the way that we express ourselves in the world that fall apart or they work out and it's great. But hopefully only one of those hits the skids at a time. And in my life, all three of those hit the skids in the same two year period. And I survived. And not only did I survive, but I thrive. And so it's a, it's a, book for anyone who has gone through any kind of transformation. So basically any human who's been having a hard time with it. And it's funny because I actually do get the question a lot of, do I give this to my friend who's just, I was diagnosed with cancer. And I would actually say it really depends on your friend because sometimes when you're going through medical crises, you don't want to read about other people's medical crises. It's certainly for the person who's sitting by that bedside. And it's certainly for, um, you know, anyone who's been curious about what it's like to spend a lot of time in a hospital, but that's, that's a smaller group, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, also another friend of mine who's male and in his forties, like he just loved it for the love story. Right. And so, I mean, there's a lot in there for anyone, for anyone who's just curious about how other people live their life. So anybody who loves reading memoirs. Yeah. There was so much in your book that really did resonate with me, even though, as I said, I don't think I would have picked it off the shelf to read, you know, over and above <laughs> something else. No offense. Yeah, but, no, um, none taken. Part of what part of what I found amazing was your ability to put into words things that really are universal. You know, even though your specific circumstance is one, although many people, of course, are touched by cancer, whether because they're diagnosed or they love someone who is, things that you write in the book, things that you talk about, like you say, I walked away from a life I had sprinted toward for more than 30 years. And this idea that we're all moving towards something, we all want something, and mm-hmm. we'll devote sometimes decades to the pursuit of it, and then we'll get there and we'll be like, mm, yeah, that's not exactly what I wanted, but we're not all willing or able to, to walk away from you know, something like that. And, and you go on and you say fancy university, political job, five years of graduate school completed in three, marriage, fancy law job. You know, like your life from the outside looked pretty darn extraordinary, right? Yeah. And, and then you walked away from it. What, what allowed you to do that or how did you do that? The short answer is that I had to. 
And one of the main reasons why I decided to publish this book was because I wanted other people to understand that they could leave their life before they were forced into it. Brief summary, um, I went to an elite private high school. I went to an Ivy League college. I was working um, senior staff in Massachusetts state government by the time I was in my late 20s. I then went to graduate school, as you mentioned, at another elite university. And then I was working at one of the best law firms in the world by the time I was diagnosed with cancer. You know, and I had this marriage that on its face looked fantastic and wonderful and amazing. And after cancer and then a year and a half of recovery and then another medical disaster, um, I realized that my body wasn't capable of living the life that I had chosen by my, that my brain had chosen to live. That was a very hard realization. What do you mean by that, by the way, that your body wasn't capable of living the life your brain had chosen to live? So everything I had done was, um, I mean, it took a lot, right? You don't get a lot of sleep. You spend a lot of time in, I spent a lot of time in my brain and not a lot of time listening to my body. I've, I've certainly been guilty of that from time to time. <laughs> from <laughs> I, time to time. I think a lot of people right? listening could probably resonate with that. Yeah, and we do because... It's not impressive to be a very, very good janitor. It's impressive to be a really good lawyer, or it's impressive to be the CEO of something, or it's impressive to lead this nonprofit. The work that needs to be done for us to survive as humans of farming and all the rest of it, that's not, that's not what we've decided is impressive anymore. And so by its nature, we all who are striving for these white-collar success stories are living in our brains. And I had to force my body from the point that I was very young to be comfortable being ignored. I didn't spend nearly enough time working out as I should have. I wasn't eating right. I mean, like just the stress that builds up in your body after years and years and years of not paying enough attention to it. Well, and, and just being too much in my brain. Which, by the way, to just go down that path for just a moment, this yeah. is something I wanted to ask you about. In the book, you also write, I suddenly remember that at age 10, I developed mm-hmm. a nervousness about my own health, a fear that something bigger was going on that cough syrup wasn't going to cure. I had calmed myself down by becoming an athlete, ensuring that I would stay physically strong. Yeah. So two things for me that that come up that I find really interesting. Number one that when I hear you say your body wasn't able to live the life your brain had chosen, yet you had you division one rower, right? You yep. could bench press your own body body weight. I mean, like you weren't, yep. you weren't like an obese slob. You were a fit, no. right? You were runner, yeah. you know, yep. this kind of thing. And, and so there's this background that I think is useful for people listening to understand that you were in really good shape and yeah. even I- still... Right. And, and then the other thing that I thought was remarkable is how you had this realization at age 10, you know, this nervousness and you made a decision to be a certain way. And then you lived from that place like full on. And I think I, I, I mean, I think that we do that, but most of the time we do that unconsciously and then it's just who we are. Right. But I, yeah. but what what's so powerful to me about your story is that you are able to make new decisions as you mature, as you evolve, you know, that kind of thing. Right. Well, as I kept landing in the hospital bed, right? Um, and so it reached a point where I was literally, I mean, modern medicine was saving my life on an alarmingly frequent basis. 
And, you know, and I had a conversation with the same gentleman who told me to stop being a human doing. And he looked at me and he said, listen, like, you're not going to make it. If you keep choosing to live your life this way, at some point, modern medicine is going to not have the solution for you. You know, and I joke about it now, especially because, you know, I'm sort of obsessed with The Rock. I think he's an extraordinary human being. But, um, you know, I look at Dwayne Johnson and I'm like, I don't have that body. Like, I don't have that. I wish I did. Like, how amazing, right? It, it might just be because you don't have his weight set. I've read about it. The guy has like 45,000 <laughs> pounds in his... <laughs> I know. And a nutritionist in his back pocket and a yeah. private chef, right? <laughs> um, you know, I was just born a little bit more frail. Hmm. And that's okay. And I spent years of my life fighting the reality of my own existence. Mm. And finally, you know, cancer at 33, heart surgery at 35, you know, in this conversation with this gentleman shortly after, I I finally realized that if I was going to live, I was going to have to start recognizing the reality of my own life. And I wanted to live more than I wanted the job that I'd pursued. And so I switched. And it was really hard. I mean, it was so hard. And it still is every day. People ask me what I do. And I have to sort of be like, oh, right, I'm an author, not a lawyer. And like, and that's great. But it also took me a while to get to the point where I became an author. And so for that two years between quitting and then being published, it was, it's like our brains want acknowledgement. Yeah. Um, and, and certainty, and, right? And certain, yeah, exactly. And um, so it's still, it's still hard for me, but it's better than it was. Yeah. <laughs> well, one one thing I love in what you're saying too is, and I think the way even you worded that about that you can leave your life before you're forced into it. Yeah. You're saying like that that's something that's available to us if there's an aspect of our life that's not what we want it to be or it's really not working for us, but we haven't totally owned or admitted that. That we don't need to wait until a crisis, but we can, in fact, we do have the power to make a choice to live yeah. a certain way, be a certain kind of person. And one of the things that I'm really glad that you wrote in, in the book, and uh, I want to ask you about now, you say that according to some theories, cancer is a physical manifestation of our shadow side. That if our human body is a miracle of light and energy, rapidly dividing rapacious cancer cells are the boogeymen who live in the dark. <laughs> now, that's pretty poetic, but I happen to believe there is something to that, right? That every physical, everything that happens in the physical world is a manifestation or expression or reflection of something energetic, something emotional, something spiritual, you know, something like that. And, and so, you know, you, you wrote a little bit about this right here, but how much of this do you think, how much of your cancer and, and the journey that you went through was life or the universe or your higher self, like trying to wake you up or get your attention and say like, Hey, oh. get, you know, get back on the path. Oh, wow. I, I firmly believe that 100% of my cancer was that. I don't often actually say that out loud. So, hi, I'm saying that out loud. <laughs> um, the last thing I want anyone to believe is that they deserve to get a disease like cancer, right? I mean, no one, no one lives their life and then at the end of it says, oh, wow, I really deserve dying this horrible death. And But I do believe that diseases like cancer that are purely ourselves, right? It's not triggered by a virus or a bacteria. It's our own cells. Sometimes, um, though, there are things in the environment, right? Oh, well, yeah, absolutely, right? Um, you know, there are triggers and all the rest of it. But 
But then there's also the question of, you know, why do some people smoke for 80 years and, you know. But at least in my case, I believe that cancer showed up to to put a stop sign in the middle of my road. And I joke about the fact that I was living my life with blinders and almost by a checklist. It was like, all right, I graduated from this high school and I'm going to go to college and then I'm going to graduate from that college and I'm going to go to get a good job and then I'm going to go to graduate school and then I'm going to get married and then I'm going to get pregnant and then I'm going to move to the suburbs and and then I'm going to run a company and then I'm going to retire and then I'm going to die. Like, I mean, I had this checklist in my mind and it wasn't quite that blunt, but it was sort of this prescription that I'd laid out for myself and cancer showed up very much to say, stop, stop what you're doing. Take a minute and, you know, think about it, meditate on it, gather all of the bits and pieces that are you, Lydia, your brain and your body and your soul and your spirit and, and really be with this decision. Like, who do you want to be? How do you want to express yourself in this world? And what kind of support do you need in order to achieve that? Frankly, I, I ignored cancer a little bit. And so I think that's honestly why heart's, heart surgery came my way. And I made that decision after that um, to stop. I mean, to stop, really. And hardest decision of my life. And it was so hard because even though I knew that the life that I was leaving was bad for me, and not working in the way that I knew I wanted my life to work. It was comfortable, right? It was what I knew. Yeah. And that's why it, that's why I believe it's so hard for us to make changes sometimes, because even if on the other side of that change, it's something way better, it's always unknown. Right. And, um, you know, and human humans aren't good with unknown. We're just, you know, we're not, but sometimes you're just forced into it. And so hopefully, People could take the leap before they're forced. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and even just being reminded that that's a possibility, you know, yeah. is is valuable. And I think that's, I think that's one of the great things that your book, um, you know, can do for people, and and to do it in a way that's very thoughtful. There is a fair amount of humor. You know, it's very human. You know, that kind of thing. Um, you've mentioned a couple times in this discussion so far meditation. And, and I want to ask you about that because if I understood right, when you say that several days, if I understood right, it was several days, literally just days before being diagnosed that you decided to learn transcendental meditation yeah. and that you had just completed your training that morning. Is that, do I understand yep. that right? Yep. You understand it perfectly. Um, I, it was interesting because my sister had been doing transcendental meditation and she really wanted me to learn. And she said, Oh my God, you have this job and you're in this marriage that's falling apart. And, you know, please, please, please do something for yourself. And so I went and I met the person and usually they do it over the course of weeks. And she said, you know what? Like if you can be up here every morning from six to seven, let's do it from six to seven for the next four days. I was like, wow. great. So I was diagnosed on a Thursday sort of mid morning ish. And, um, and I'd seen this other woman, this, this meditation teacher, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. So literally my last session with her was four hours before I landed in my doctor's office. Wow. Um, Which was totally unexpected by the way, right? Like you'd had shortness of breath and a loss yeah. of energy, but it wasn't anything that you were like, I think I might have cancer. It was just, <laughs> you were planning to go to a wedding out of yep. state. I mean, like life was busy. Life was happening. 
And as mm-hmm. things, you know, inconvenient things often do, <laughs> it kind of surprised you. So part of what is interesting to me, and I have this theory, you know, um, I didn't originate it, but I subscribe to it, which is that, you know, there are no accidents, that there are no coincidences. Nexus IT helps companies of all sizes manage their information technology with hyper-responsive, white-glove IT support and services to handle the most basic tasks, like monitoring and maintenance, to the more complex projects like digital transformation. Visit their website at nexusitc.net. In a way that there's a part of me that hates the cheesy Hallmark side of that. But everything happens for a reason. But there's another part of me that thinks, no, there is an intelligence at operation in this universe that's greater than my logical mind, than my rational Mm -hmm. mind. And I don't know that it's accurate to say that it's guiding things, but it could, I could easily believe that that's so. And so what I'm really impressed by with your story is, as I apply that theory, you know, to your story is on the one hand, cancer shows up to put this giant stop sign in your path going hold on, slow down, reconsider, turn around, whatever. And at the same time, there's an aspect of that higher self being listened to, being honored, you know, in things like, hey, why don't you get your TM, you know, completion done? And then it happens. I mean, what's your what's your take on that about the higher self ultimately always guiding us? Oh, I think that's very true. Um, and in fact, I think with things like with the TM... There were all these nudges, right? My sister suggested it, and then I heard about it from someone else, and then I happened to read about it in a magazine, you know? And then finally I was like, oh, well, you know, maybe I'll just do it. That began the lesson of learning to quiet my mind. Um, I mean, this harkens back to our earlier chat about the cancer, but in in the same way, I feel like messages show up all the time, and we can pay attention or we can ignore them. And I feel like if we ignore them, then they escalate, right? It's like, if you're not a good driver, you're going to, you know, miss a stop sign. You're going to get sideswiped. And then suddenly you're going to, if you're lucky, you you end up getting into a car accident at low stakes. If you're unlucky, you end up getting into a car accident at high stakes, right? But eventually you're going to get into a car accident because you're not a good driver. And so with these messages that come across from wherever it is that they're coming across, I feel like we can, it's easier to pay attention to them when it's low stakes than when it gets up to high stakes. Yeah. Um, So I do, I firmly, I firmly believe that, you know, whatever it is, is out there paying attention. I mean, cause we're all here for a reason, right? I mean, otherwise, why are we here? We're not here to make a load of money. Um, We're not here to, you know, rape the planet. We're not like, there's got to be a reason why we're here. Although we're doing a pretty good job of both of those things as a civilization. (laughs) my God. Yeah, we are. But, you know, that can't be why we're here. It just can't. I don't don't know why not. Why not? (laughs) Oh, because how empty. Like, doesn't that feel empty to you? I feel like if my only purpose in life... Yeah. But, you know, and we look at our president and he just seems so empty, sad. But he is um, the chosen one, right? I mean, oh. <laughs> no. Okay. So speaking of, of, of messages, right? And, and yes. I love what you say about that, that we messages show up all the time. We can either pay attention or ignore them. And in the same way that messages are continuously available to us, 
so are teachers, right? Yeah. And a couple of the teachers that you talk about in your book that I love and I hope someday to meet in person are Ellie and Jake, your cats. Oh, my cats. Yes. Yeah. Will you talk about, you say that they were your greatest teachers as you learned to listen to your own body. Mm-hmm. Will you talk about what, like, how did they, how did cats teach you how to listen to your own body? What did you learn from them and how? Oh, I mean, cats, animals in general are just wonderful creatures. Um, and I understand that it's because they don't have a sense of time, but, you know, who knows? That's um, interesting. Say more about that. Well, they don't understand that almost like with little babies, if you're gone, then like that's the state of their life. It's like you're just gone. Yep. And they don't understand that you'll return at some point. Um, and same thing when you're here, they don't understand that at some point you'll leave. Um, and so there's something remarkably present about animals simply because they don't understand that the future happens or the past has happened and it's just right now. And cats, especially, and this may just be me. I mean, I've never been a particularly strong dog person, but I feel like cats are some of the most remarkable teachers we have. They're centered and grounded and purely who they are. And they don't try and please anyone, which I think is a remarkable lesson in and of itself. But the one thing that Ellie and Jake did for me that was so important, especially when I was in my early stages of being sick, was they would tell me when my brain was getting in the way of my body. And um, and they did it by, I mean, going through chemotherapy, I was exhausted all the time. And there were some mornings that I would wake up and my brain would say, you need to get out of bed because you're a human being with all of these graduate degrees and you have to like live the life and contribute in the way that you told yourself that you would live your life and contribute. And so I would start to drag myself out of bed and one of my cats invariably would just swat me. Literally, they would (laughs) roll over and they would swat me and they'd say, no. And so I'd go back to bed. Oh, thank God, you know, and I'd go back to bed. And, um, but on the days where my body was feeling better, but my brain was like, no, you're sick. It's fine. Just stay in bed. That was when they would walk all over me and yell for breakfast. And it was like, how do you know? And they just knew. They knew from my cues, like my physical cues from, you know, I don't know, maybe even the way I smelled. Who knows? But I, I just really began to learn from them when my brain was playing tricks on my body. And as I watched them watch me, it, you know, it's still hard. Um, They still teach me, but it's a remarkable back and forth when um, when I suddenly realized that I was basically in conversation with these two little creatures who don't speak English. Um, And they were they were teaching me so much about my brain versus my body. It was wonderful. Still Uh, is. What a gift. Yeah. One of them might show up here. You know, you never know. You hear someone meow. (laughs) Right on. Well, cool. And you also talk about Ruth, your therapist, and that she was also instrumental in helping you listen to your body. Mm -hmm. What did you learn from her? Well, I mean, the nuts and bolts, um, she taught me how to breathe, um, to actually bring my breath down into my diaphragm, down into my belly. Um, and she taught me how to breathe and, um, and then she taught me how to, you know, breathe quietly. But what she really taught me was that it's okay to meditate. And I know that sounds a little crazy, but my 
mother when I was a teenager uh, sort of took a hard left or right turn or however you would describe it and um, went off to become a hands-on healer. And, you know, my father worked for the government and she'd worked for UNESCO and for the World Bank. And we were very much a family that didn't have crystals lying around our house and nobody meditated and, you know, we lived our life. And at the most traumatic point of my adolescence, my mother goes off and decides to do this and comes home wearing long skirts and it was, they were all white and she eventually shaved her head and it was mortifying. Right. What's the, by the way, what's the background? Like, I I mean, to hear a hands-on healer, I'm, I'm, I'm picturing a character from like a Ben Stiller film, but I don't know. What? Literally. I mean, that's what it felt like to me. I mean, for my mother, she she did it for her own healing and for her own work. And she eventually sort of I, what I didn't see was the 20 years of conversation that kind of led up to this. Um, uh-huh. But that's, you know, the the ignorance of youth. Right. Um, but as far as I was concerned, she suddenly went from like, you know, a corporate high level executive to a crazy person. Wow. And. And it was all sort of centered around this like meditation crystal hands on hoodoo, which of course now I know is not hoodoo, but like at the time was mortifying. And so I had to learn from an event and I had to learn from someone who did not look and sound like my mother that this is actually real stuff. Hmm. And so having someone like Ruth, who, you know, was a highly trained psychologist and psychiatrist and successful and all of the trappings that make me feel like she's believable. Yeah. Um, have those words come out of her mouth saying, this is something that could help you. It was like, Oh, okay. So my mother may be crazy, but this little thing over here is actually useful. Mm. And she was like, yes. And then while we're at it, we might as well talk about the fact that your mother's not actually crazy, (laughs) but you know, (laughs) but sometimes you just need to hear it from someone else. Right. Not Um, that just proves to me that not listening to our parents comes in many forms, not just eat your vegetables, be home, you know, by curfew. (laughs) Right. Don't drink too much. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. And so that was one of the main things that Ruth taught me among some of the many, you know, meditation is something that people who work as high powered attorneys can do and and not you know fall off the deep edge of of new age blah 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 yeah well and and part of what you you talk about too is learning how fundamental to your health it is that you understand that your body your mind and your spirit are three distinct pieces that Mm -hmm. you know combine to make you a complete human being and and the words that you you write about this are they each has a role to play and a voice to be heard and they must work in synchronicity for me to be healthy. Will you talk with me about how you think about the difference between body, mind, and spirit? And how can the people who are listening to you and me have this conversation now learn to listen to each of those for themselves? How I think about them, I literally think of them as three legs of a stool. And I think of the body, my body, as... um it's like the animal side of me, right? The Ellie Jake side of me. It only lives in the present. It doesn't have a concept of future or past. Um, if something hurts, it hurts. If uh, And that's kind of the only way that the body knows how to speak, right? Is through pain or pleasure. And, um, and to learning to listen to that, learning to understand that a twinge is actually a twinge. It's not a sky falling and it's not a nothing, right? It's It's a twinge. Paying attention to 
the signals that my body is telling me is a big part of this. Um, and then my mind can only live in the present or the future. I mean, can only live in the past or the future, right? Because the minute that your mind has thought about something or analyzed it or has done whatever it's done, that event is already in the past. Yeah. And then if it's imagining something in the future, then it's living in the future. Like your mind can't be in the present. And so I feel like this sort of interesting partnership between the mind and the body of the body is our present is our present selves and our mind is the one that helps us learn the lessons from the present moment. And then the spirit is, so I just use those words, my mind and my body. So who's my, who's me? Who is this entity that claims my body and my mind as its own? And so I think of the spirit as sort of the three, the, like the circus master. And it works in partnership with the information that it's learning from both. But ultimately, it's the one that comes down and says, this is what we're going to do. And it's also how I access the lessons that I learned during meditation or, you know, a great deal of my book. Obviously, it came out of my brain, but I would be lying if I say that I made up 100% of my book. Well, if you didn't do it, who did? Well, right. (laughs) Who did? Um, You know, I still read pieces of my book and I go, wow, I wrote that. It's like, no way. You know, I mean, like, no way I wrote that. But I did. Like, it came out of my body, came out of my fingers. So that that's how I think of the three of them together. Um, And it's very much a relationship. Um, So for a long time, my brain overruled both. While I was sick, honestly, my body was the one that was in charge. And then um, I spent a great deal of time and effort sort of building up the muscles of my spirit and how to, how to find it, how to talk to it, how to be in relationship with it. And that, that part I'm still very much working on. Um, what have you found has worked to help you do that? Time and quiet. Uh, my husband and I actually recently moved, recently, almost a year ago now, um, from downtown Chicago to upstate New York. And... Uh, for the first time in my life, I'm not living in the middle of a city. And I, you know, in fact, quite the opposite. I live in the middle of nowhere and, um, and it's quiet and it has helped so much. I mean, the, the mountain where, where you and I met, um, you know, I spend time there, but quiet and whether it comes in the form of meditation or whether it comes in the form of walking in the woods or staring at a river, but quiet because the quieter I am, the more I realize that, the messages that are coming at me are not always of my brain's own creation. And whether it's an imagine a piece of imagination or a vision, who knows, right? But learning to pay attention to those messages only comes when I'm quiet. Yeah, yeah there's something really beautiful about about quiet and stillness and silence, you know, that I think we yearn for, but at the same time we very often we resist. Oh, you know? yeah. Well, because we're not being productive when we're being quiet, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Okay, cool. So the last thing I want to ask about before before I shift gears is um, something you said that I thought was really, really insightful and very honest and very relatable. And it was about your relationship with the hospital and about mm. how it was this place of comfort or certainty and... Um, in fact, I 
oh, there's actually two things I want to ask. One is about the hospital, and this other is is about pain and grace. Mm-hmm. Um, but will you tell me, I mean, because you talk about the hospital being the only place you'd ever felt truly comfortable in your adult life. That's <laughs> that's pretty profound to me, anyway. Will you share a little bit about why, like, what did you mean by that? What was that about? What happened after, so I was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and then I had four months of chemotherapy, and then I had a pretty big surgery, and then I was out, right? I was told to go home, go back to work, go back to your life. And um, and I realized as I was trying to shoehorn this new version of myself back into my old life that I was so uncomfortable. I was I was physically uncomfortable. I was mentally in anguish. And I had no idea why. And suddenly I realized that it was because I was faced now with these infinite choices. And I had no idea where to start the process of choosing. And suddenly I realized as I was in the middle of this sort of fog of survivorship that the hospital gave me a place where I had no choices I'd surrendered to my protocol as it was laid out by my doctors. And my only job from that point forward was to be a good patient. You know, I didn't know more about the medicine than they did. I, you know, I just surrendered to the protocol. And for the first time in my adult life, I had no choices in front of me. It was so freeing, right? Because, I mean, like my brain was always worrying about you know, okay, well, if I do that, then this is going to happen. And okay, well, if I get this job, then that'll happen, you know, or even like, what am I going to have for dinner? You know, it's like, we're always faced with this buzz in the back of our heads of, you know, choices and decisions and all of this stuff. And in the hospital, I had no decisions to make and I had no choices in front of me. And it was so relaxing. And I know that sounds crazy. Like I'm getting chemotherapy and it's beating the hell out of my body. But I was so relaxed because my brain shut down. I, my only job was to be in the present. And as I mentioned before, my brain, nobody's brain can be in the present. And so my brain had no job. So suddenly my brain realized that it was on vacation. Mm. And it was wonderful. I mean, my body was in upheaval, but my brain was finally like, oh, thank God. And I just craved that. I mean, coming back into the chaos of a corporate life um, after chemotherapy and surgery and all the rest of it just killed my brain. And all I wanted was to go back into a space where I, I didn't have to be making choices all the time. Hey, thanks so much for listening to part one of my interview with Lydia Slaby. Tune in again to episode two to hear the rest of our conversation. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world, where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or who live in conflict zones, there's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. 
Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing, I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep into every area of your life, explore life's big questions, create answers for yourself in community, get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at brian at brianmiller.com or by visiting goodliving.com.